Podcast. Podcast. The one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter week. I'm your host, Jeff, better known as Benny Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 136th episode of the Nauticast titled The Dark Knight Part 2, an analysis of a Clash of Kings Catlin 7, in which Catlin and Jamie exchange riddles because apparently, it, it, are we in The Hobbit at this very moment for this chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire? It kind of seems that way. <laughs> this is uh we're, we're switching over into the tolkien cast now we're just we're just stepping back in time as always this episode is brought to you by our not a small council our hand of the king wolfman zach grand maester tim bob troubleshooter of systems and designer of circuit boards lord command the king's guard mark n lord travis master of ships and war of the waves captain of the war galley night wolf the ship that stalks the seven seas and wielder of the valyrian steel trident summoner the blade that brings the deep ones sir keith j master whispers lord phil the merciful master of laws Archmaster Joom, Heel of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson Hammer, Prince of Dragonscombe, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, Ward of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bane Fort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gem That Was Promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord Jacob Sitted, to the Hand of the King, Lady Zeta Valyrian, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dana, Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Ward of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, The Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Adamus, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, The King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Low Energy Gent, True Master of the Bainfort, and True Master of Coin, Laura Penchant for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite stand ambassador to Chromatica, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and Gentle Dems, Haldiver, the waiter for T-Wow, A.A. Ron, Dampair, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the first of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Harp, the Overwork, Queen of Pencils, the Eraser, and the first draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee, the Great Game of Thrones, Pushes the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blutter Pates, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, The Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshall, Harrison, Absent, Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave Rob Stark, The Cadaver King, and Horror of Heron Hall, Olaf, Proponent of Establishing a Feudo-Pseudo-Democratic System of Great Councils, wherein every count votes, Sir Tim, The Knight Who Is Guided by Voices, Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dana, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Lord Jean, the Splendid, Master of Coin, Board of Tampa Bay, Lady Anna, the Lovely Castellan, Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal, and Guardian of the Boneway, Lord Charles Tyrell of Highgarden, Lord Paramount the Mandarin, Defender of the Marches, High Marshal of the Reach, Ward of the South, and the Heir of House Tyrell. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Squid Pro Quo, Master of Zorse, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Hadrigal, Captain of the Airship, Arrogance, Squire Matt S, Future Matt S, the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms, B-Word, Queen Beyond the Wall, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, and Blackberry the Bold, Champion of the Feel Good Times. Thank you to our counselors, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Windsor sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Lord Travis, our small council master of ships, who asks, I get the Mad King is a complete nutter, but why did he want Robert Baratheon's head? Ned Stark, okay, sure. 
Ned's father and brother just came to the capital and came to the capital and threatened the royal family. If I recall correctly, the text says it was because Robert was Lyanna's betrothed. Was Eris going to kill everyone associated with House Stark? Did he find out about the Night of the Laughing Tree and link Robert to Lyanna that way too? Or was someone else whispering his head and wanted to start a war by asking for too much from John Aaron? So what do you think about that, Jeff? Why did the Mad King want Robert's head specifically? Well, as we're going to talk about it in this this Jamie chapter, no, Catelyn chapter, that uh, that what was going on specifically was that Ares was becoming increasingly paranoid because what ends up had the 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 sequence of events goes like this: Defiance of Duskendale happens in the two seventies. Then we have the turning of Harrenhal in two eighty one, which there was a potential. I would say likely coup attempt by Rhaegar and Rhaegar's loyalists that was occurring there. And then, of course, right after that in 282, late 282, early 283, we have uh, we have Rhaegar abducting Lyanna Stark and then Brandon coming into King's Landing and declaring that and, and demanding that Rhaegar come out and die, which not so smart to say. So, um, yeah, it's uh, to me, it's it's not necessarily that Ares is thinking like quite sequentially and chronologically here he's more thinking in terms of his own paranoia as he becomes more and more paranoid as more and more events start to swirl out of his control and also as far as the spiders continue to feed him more information about who is potentially betraying him so i i, I think I'm, I'm not necessarily sure where Ares would have stopped i mean he kills rickard and brandon in the most brutal way possible and, and rickard stark you know rickard stark came peacefully to Ares the second targaryen and said look Please release my son. And Aerys Targaryen rewarded him by locking him up in a cage and burning him alive. Again, we're going to talk about it for this chapter. I, I, I don't think that really ends. I think after that, like, Aerys starts saying, like, yes, I want Robert and I want Ned and I want all these different characters and figures here. Now, there's a great theory called the Heron Hall Conspiracy, if I'm not mistaken, if that's the name, by, by a writer by the name of King Littlefinger. King Littlefinger, uh, in, in which he, he stipulates that Ares became paranoid about the Starks and the Baratheons in particular, simply because he had Ethan Glover, who was Brandon's squire, uh, who came down. Brandon, as we'll talk about, Ethan Glover was the one guy who survived of the original 16 that came with Brandon down to King's Landing. And the reason why he may have survived is he may have, may have, uh, may have been a rat on, on the Southern Ambitions conspiracy. And that's what may have, might have driven Eris the Second's paranoia. So I think that's a potential for why specifically Eris was ang- was paranoid against Robert and Ned. Although, as we talked about in our episode, our patron episode about Robert Baratheon, and as we talked about for Ned Stark, like how where were they that they were the epicenter of these massive conspiracies to overthrow Eris the Second Targaryens? Probably not super aware. At least Robert probably was not aware until they finally crowned him at River Run in, in 283 AC. But uh, but I think. You know, you have these major conspiracies that are going in intersecting ways like this feeds into Ares's paranoia, and that likely is then feeding into him becoming more and more monstrous and brutal and demanding more and more heads and deaths and all sorts of terrible things, which, of course, leads to his downfall. What do you think, sir? I think, you know, definitely, uh, I think Ethan Glover surviving, I think, is, isn't something George dwells on, but it's never explained. And so I think it is entirely possible he gave the game away. But, yeah, I mean, Ares wasn't really demanding everyone's heads. I mean, Eris demanded two heads, specifically. Robert Baratheon and Annette Stark. You know, he wasn't demanding the Red Wine's heads. He wasn't demanding the Car Stark's heads or, you know, the crag, the people from the crag, the Westerling's heads. It was Robert and Ned specifically. And as Travis says, yeah, Ned has the, the clear connection to Brandon and Rickard. But yeah, for me, Robert suggests that Eris knew something was up. And he may not have known the full extent of it. And he may have just seized that Robert is the obvious charismatic rock star. And Eris is just resentful of people who get attention. But I think... 
yeah, at, at that point, I think Eris seems to have seized on the, you know, a kernel of truth and then gathered a lot of bullshit around it and then just kind of dumped his paranoia onto that. Because, you know, there was a seed of truth in that. Yeah, the lords were getting together to overthrow Eris Targaryen. There's a lot of evidence of that. And I think he might have inadvertently stumbled upon it. But, you know, he was already executing Ricard and Brandon, so it wasn't, you know, he kind of proved the South Run Ambitions conspiracy's point uh, in, terms of, in terms of how he conducted himself. But, yeah, I think... Yeah, I think it's revealing. I think that he that he, that he went after Robert because he doesn't really have a strong motivation otherwise. Yeah, so I mean, like, there's a lot of like mysteries about Robert's rebellion that I'm very curious to see how George is going to resolve come come the Winds Winter beyond. And some of these ones about the formation of Ares's the second's thought patterns might we might see that in Brand's chapters uh, come come the Winds Winter. We might also see that maybe in potential Jamie chapters too. If there's more revelations about Ares the second Targaryen that Jamie is holding back for reasons that I'm I'm not quite aware of why why George would do that but all the same Jamie has a lot of stuff that he knows about the uh, the Targaryen regime so does Barristan for that matter too and he's going to remain a point of view character so That's lots true. of different is, is and Connington and Connington vector. yeah Good we point. got lots lots of potential candidates to reveal more information about the uh, formation of Robert's rebellion so uh take a take a look for the ones of winner once out next week for uh, to find more information about that for sure so thank you, Lord Travis, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions here on the Not A Cast podcast, you're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher-level patron over at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can get show notes, free merch, mini-episodes, access to the Nada Slack, and bonus episodes like our just-released episode on Fever Dream, Chapter 14, Part 2, if you're listening to this on the general release date, and our upcoming episode on The Pink Letter and why Ramsey definitely wrote it. Yes, absolutely. And we just also wanted to announce as well for next week, we are going to take the week off for, for Thanksgiving week, but not to not to fret. One, if you're a patron, you're going to have that Pink Letter episode. And two, if you're not a patron, that's no problem at all. We are pleased to announce we're going to be releasing part two of The Forsaken out to all of you folks. That was our general release day on Monday, the week before Thanksgiving. So if you're looking for that special thing to listen to, which is, of course, mostly Emmett's voice and sometimes my voice as well, as you're driving out to, I guess, Alaska is that where people drive to for Thanksgiving? They drive from like Georgia to Alaska. Whatever your whatever your your, your long trip is, I'm sure the Forsaken Part Two will help you get there a little bit quicker. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Catelyn, she had received news that Bran and Rickon were dead, and she decided to visit Jamie Lannister in the dungeon under River Run. Let's find out what happens with the rest of that conversation in this synopsis of a Clash of Kings. Jamie, wait, with the Clash of Kings, Catelyn Seven. Catelyn realizes that Jamie is all arrogance and pride. She tells Jamie that if he doesn't want to speak with her, fine, go fucking drink your wine or piss into it. She's out of here. At the door, though, Catelyn hears a voice behind her. Lady Stark. She turned, waited. <laughs> Things go to rust in this damp. Jamie went on. Even a man's courtesies stay, and you shall have your answers for a price. He has no shame. Captives do not set prices. Oh, you'll find mine modest enough. You're, you see, your turnkey tells me nothing but vile lies, and he cannot even keep them straight. One day he says Cersei has been flayed, and the next it's my father. Answer my questions, and I'll answer yours. Truthfully? Oh, it's truth you want. Be careful, my lady. Tyrion says that people often claim to hunger for truth, but seldom like the taste when it's served up. Catelyn claims that she's strong enough, so then Jamie asks for his wine. After Catelyn gives it to him, Jamie declares it, quote, sour and vile, but doable. What's Catelyn's first question? Not knowing how long this game might continue, Catelyn wasted no time. Are you Joffrey's father? You would never ask unless you knew the answer. I want it from your own lips. 
Jamie shrugged. Joffrey is mine, as are the rest of Cersei's brood, I suppose. So Jamie is Cersei's lover? Yep. Now his question. Do my kin all live? Sir Stafford Lannister was slain at Oxcross, Catelyn said, I am told. Jamie was unmoved. Uncle Dalt, my sister called him. It's Cersei and Tyrion who concern me, as well as my lord father. They live, all three, but not for long, if the gods are good. Now Catelyn's question. Catelyn wondered if he would dare answer her next question with anything but a lie. How did my son Bran come to fall? I flung him from a window. The easy way he said it took her voice away for an instant. If I had a knife, I would kill him now, she thought, until she remembered the girls. Her throat constricted as she said, You were a knight, sworn to defend the weak and innocent. Oh, he, he was weak enough, but perhaps not so innocent. He was spying on us. Catelyn says that Bran would not spy, and Jamie tells her then just fucking blame the gods for having him climb up to his window and see something that he was not supposed to see. Blame the gods, she said incredulous. Yours was the hand that threw him. You meant for him to die. His chains clink softly. <laughs> I seldom fling children from towers to improve their health. Yes, yes, I meant for him to die. Catelyn tries to put the pieces together. And when he did not, you knew your danger was worse than ever, so you gave your cat's ball a bag of silver to make certain Bran would never wake. Did I now? Jamie lifted his cup and took a long swell. Well, I won't deny we talked of it, but you were with the boy day and night. Your maester and lord Eddard attended him frequently, and there were guards, even those damned direwolves. It would have required cutting my way through half of Winterfell. Why bother when the boy seems like to die of his own accord? Cat tells Jamie that if he's lying, this Q&A session is over. Jamie had no part. He did not. On his honor as a Lannister. In response, Catelyn kicks the poop pot and says that's what his honor is worth. Jamie Lannister backed away from the spill as if his own, as far as his own chains would allow. I may indeed have shit for honor, I won't deny it, but I've never yet hired anyone to do my killing. Believe what you will, Lady Stark, but if I had wanted your brand dead, I would have slain him myself. Gosh, be merciful, he's telling the truth. If you did not send the killer, your sister did. Nope, not Cersei. She wouldn't keep secrets from Jamie. Oh, oh, really now, Jamie? Hmm, let's let's consider that one from A Storm of Swords and A Feast for Crows. You might want to test that one out. If it wasn't Cersei, it was Tyrion, right? No, Jamie says. Then why did the assassin have his dagger? Well, what dagger was this? It, it, it was so long, she said, holding her hands apart. Plain, but finely made with a blade of Valyrian steel and a dragon bone hilt. Your brother won it from Lord Baelish at the tourney on Prince Joffrey's name day. Jamie drinks some more and remembers the dagger. He asks how Tyrion won it. Tyrion won it wagering on Jamie when he tilted against Loras Tyrell? And then Catelyn kind of scratches her head, pauses, and corrects herself. No, no, no. Tyrion wagered on Loras. Tyrion always backed me in the list, Jamie said. But that day, yes, Sir Loras untorsed me. A mischance. I took the boy too lightly. But no matter. Whatever my brother wagered, he lost. But that dagger did change hands. I, re I do recall it now. Robert showed to me that night at the feast. His grace loved to salt my wounds, especially when drunk. And when was he not drunk? Catelyn remembers that Tyrion said as much in the Mountains of the Moon. She hadn't believed him then because small dick Littlefinger had claimed otherwise. Wait a second, is Littlefinger not entirely trustworthy? Fuck me. Besides, Jamie and Tyrion hadn't seen each other in a year, so maybe he's telling the truth. But no, 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 Littlefinger loved Catelyn. 
She demands to know if Jamie is lying, thinking there's a trap here. Jamie says he's, no, I'm, I'm not lying. He admitted to throwing Bran out of a window. So again, what purpose would lying serve here? But now it's his turn. Have Robert's brothers taken the field? They have. Oh, now there's a niggardly response. Give me more than that or your next answer will be as poor. Stannis marches against King's Landing, she said grudgingly. Renly is dead, murdered at Bitterbridge by his brother through some black art I do not understand. Jamie says, oh, that's too bad about Renly. He liked him. <laughs> not Stannis, though. Fuck that guy. How about the Tyrells? Whose side are they on? They were Renly's, according to Catelyn, and now no one knows. Oh, your boy must be feeling so lonely. Rob was 16 a few days past, a man grown and a king. He's won every battle he's fought. The last word we had from him, he had taken the crag from the Westerlings. He hasn't faced my father yet, has he? When he does, he'll defeat him as he did you. <laughs> he took me unawares, a craven's trick. Catelyn is outraged at this talk of tricks, especially after Tyrion sent cutthroats to spring Jamie free. Oh yeah, Jamie retorts, if one of your boys was in jail, the other boys would have done the same. My son has no brother, she thought, but she would not share her pain with a creature such as this. Jamie drinks some more wine. What's a brother's life when honor's at stake? Another sip. Tyrion is clever enough to realize that your son will never consent to ransom me. Reluctantly, Catelyn agrees, saying that Rob's bannermen want Jamie dead, especially Rickard Karstark, the guy whose sons Jamie killed. Jamie thinks about this for a moment and says, yeah, he did get them good and hard, but he was trying to kill Rob. It was the warship, Milady of Stark. That's what any knight would do. How can you still count yourself a knight when you have forsaken every vow you ever swore? Catelyn asked. Jamie reached for the flag and to refill his cup. <laughs> so many vows. They make you swear and swear. Defend the king, obey the king, keep his secrets, do his bidding, your life for his. But obey your father, love your sister, protect the innocent, defend the weak, respect the gods, obey the laws. It's too much. No matter what you do, you're forsaking one vow or the other. I just, God, I just love this scene, this chapter, this dialogue is just outstanding. Jamie drinks some more and declares that he was the youngest man to wear the white cloak and the youngest to betray it all. All it stood for Kingslayer, Catelyn said. Kingslayer, he pronounced it carefully, and such a king he was. He lifted his cup. Daenerys Targaryen, the second of his name, lord of the seven kingdoms, a protector of the realm, and to the sword that opened his throat, a golden sword, don't you know, until his blood ran red down the blade. Those are the Lannister colors, red and gold. As he laughed, she realized that the wine had done its work. Jamie had drained most of the flagon, and he was drunk. And I've never been there before personally, so, you know, well, I'm just taking Catelyn's word for it here. Only a man like you would be proud of such an act. Jamie reminds Catelyn of his earlier answer about there being no men like him. Also, just for shits and giggles, did Ned ever tell Cat about Rickard or Brandon's deaths? Catelyn says yes. Brandon was strangled, and Lord Rickard was, you know, killed as well. She wonders why he's asking. Well, he's not telling just yet. He asks again, how did the two Starks die? Strangled or beheaded, Catelyn replies. Jamie takes another swig and tells her that Ned tried to spare her the brutal truth. But Catelyn can ask him, and he tell her the real truth. But Catelyn doesn't want to know. He, he's dead, and dead is dead. Maybe. But Jamie thinks Brandon was like him, warm-blooded instead of having cold water in his veins like Ned. And that just sets Catelyn right the fuck off. Brandon was nothing like you. Oh, if you say so, you and he were to wed, right? He, he was on his way to Riverrun when... 
Strange how telling it still made her throat grow tight after all these years. What when he heard about Lyanna and he went to King's Landing instead? It, it was a rash thing to do. She remembered how his her own father had raged when the news had been brought to River Run. The gallant fool was what he called Brandon. Jamie poured the last half cup of wine. Uh, he rode into the Red Keep with a few companions shouting for Prince Rhaegar to come out and die. But Rhaegar wasn't there. Eris sent his guards to arrest them all for plotting his son's murder. The others were Lord's sons too, it seems to me. Catelyn remembers the names of the men who were with Brandon. Ethan Glover, Geoffrey Malister, Kyle Royce, Albert Aaron. Eris Targaryen arrested them all and ordered their fathers to come to court to answer for their treason. And when their dads came, he murdered all of them, save for Ethan Glover without trial. No, there were trials of a sort. Lord Rickard demanded trial by combat, and the king granted the request. Stark armored himself as for battle, thinking to do one of the king's guard. Me, perhaps. Instead, they took him to the throne room and suspended him from the rafters while two of the heiress's paramancers kindled a blaze beneath him. The king told him that fire was the champion of House Targaryen. So all, liquor, Lord, so all Lord Rickard needed to do to prove himself innocent of treason was, well, not burn. When the fire was blazing, Brandon was brought in. His hands were chained behind his pack, and around his neck was a wet leathern cord attached to a device the king had brought from Tyrosh. His legs were left free, though, and his longsword was set down just beyond his reach. The pyromancers roasted Lord Rickard slowly, banking and fanning that fire carefully to get that nice even heat. His cloak caught first, and then his surcoat, and soon he wore nothing but metal and ashes. Next, he would start to cook. Ares promised, unless his, unless his son could free him. Brandon tried, but the more he struggled, the tighter the cord constricted around his throat. In the end, he strangled himself. As for Lord Rickard, the steel of his breastplate turned cherry red before the end, and his gold melted off his spurs and dripped down into the fire. I, I stood at the foot of the iron throne in my white armor and white, and white cloak, filling my head with thoughts of Cersei. After Gerald Hightower himself took me aside and said to me, you swore a vow to guard the king, not to judge him. Now that was the white bull, right? Loyal to the end and a better man than me. All agree. Catelyn is now thoroughly shook. She figures that this is so horrifying that it has to be true. But Jamie can't possibly want people to believe he became the Kingslayer to avenge Brennan. <laughs> No, he didn't. He didn't give a shit about the Starks. He has no idea why he was hated for his finest act and love for a kindness he never did. He was forced to kneel to Robert along with Pycelle and Varys, but Ned refused to kiss his hand. He only wanted to scorn Jamie for sitting Robert's throne. Really, did Ned love anyone, his dad, his bro, or even Catelyn as much as he loved Robert? He was never unfaithful to Robert anyhow. It's hilarious, bro. Find nothing about you amusing Kingslayer. That <laughs> name again. I don't think I'll fuck you after all. Littlefinger had you first, didn't he? I never eat off another man's trencher. Besides, you are not half so lovely as my sister. His smile cut. I've never lain with any woman but Cersei. In my own way, I have been truer than your Ned ever was. Poor old dead Ned. So who has shit for honor now, I ask you? What was the name of that bastard he fathered? Catelyn took a step backward. Brienne. No, 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 it wasn't that. Jamie Lancer upended the flagon. A trickle ran down into his face, bright as blood. Snow. That was the one. Such a white name. Like the pretty cloaks they give us the Kingsguard when we swear our pretty oaths. 
Brienne pushed open the door and stepped inside the cell. You called, my lady? Give me your sword. Catelyn held out her hand. And that is A Clash of Kings, Catelyn 7, Part 2. That was one hell of a chapter. Like, Part 1 was fantastic. And Part 2 is just somehow leaps and bounds is even better than Part 1 of this chapter. What did you think, sir? So last time we set the mood, talking about Catelyn's despair and how it manifested in her conversations with Brienne and Hoster, as well as the imagery surrounding all of them. Now we get to the meat of the chapter, a struggle of wills between Catelyn Stark and Jaime Lannister. This is one of the great dialogue scenes in the series. Within A Clash of Kings, I think only Stannis versus Renly is as good. Even as both Catelyn and Jaime claim to be dispassionately cutting away distortions to arrive at the truth, both of them are also open wounds, psychologically, with so many fragile defense mechanisms coming into conflict. They're testing each other with specific goals in mind, but as the conversation gets off topic, and as Jaime gets progressively more wasted, <laughs> this scene takes shape as being less about those specific character goals and more about what has become of the Roberts Rebellion generation. How they have changed since their glory days, mostly for the worse. I'm trying to think of a character from the Roberts Rebellion area who's changed for the better. <laughs> uh, um, I'm, maybe Davos would say that he is, but I don't know if his family would agree. No, they probably would not, and his hand would not agree either, for that matter. Having true. Lost those finger those joints so yeah i mean when we get to jamie's chapters in the storm of swords i'm going to talk about how the recontextualization of jamie lannister as seen in his pov chapters is in my opinion and opinions vary of course is the greatest literary triumph that george r martin ever accomplished in this story known as the song of ice and fire because this this man is george re-subverting the trope jamie as the dashing and beautiful knight who turns out to be the villain of game of thrones then becomes a human character here in a clash of kings and on into a storm of swords and we start to sympathize even like him at least i i, I like jamie you know in, in a storm of swords well We'll talk more about Evan's perspective on Jamie when we get to his chapters in, in Storm of Swords. It'll be a lot of fun. Um, and this literary triumph starts here in A Clash of Kings, Catelyn 7. I love Stannis and Renly's dialogue from Catelyn 3 so, so much. But in my opinion, there's, there's no better dialogue scene in the books than what occurs here at the end of Catelyn 7. I love how we learn some of the history and backstory behind Robert's Rebellion. But what makes this poignant is that this is not some academic recounting of events. It's the story of Robert's Rebellion told through two really fucking sad people who live with the emotions that these historical events imbued upon them. But first, before we actually get to the history, there can be no truth without trust. And thus, you must establish the rules of the game. Catelyn is about to walk away from Jamie after result, there are no men like me, only me. She thinks him empty of honor and humanity. And then he reaches out with an unexpected olive branch. It's unexpected not only to her, but to us, because Jamie, as Catelyn describes him, nothing but arrogance, pride, and empty courage. Well, that's all we really saw of him in A Game of Thrones. Who knew there was more? Pretty much only George R. R. Martin. Jamie says that things go to rust in the damp, even a man's courtesies. And like you in the synopsis, I'm just going to be quoting him a lot because all of this is just so memorable. <laughs> as is often the case with Jamie, it's difficult to tell if he's being sincere or sarcastic, or maybe a mix of both. On one hand, he does offer Catelyn answers to her questions. On the other, the line about courtesies does not sound sincere. Jamie really had no courtesy to go to Rust in the first place. Once again, this is like Sandor Clegane, 
who speaks out of both sides of his mouth, mocking the language of chivalry, but also, at key points, embracing it. Jamie offers Catelyn a fair deal, an exchange of information. It's an establishment of trust between Stark and Lannister, on the most intimate possible level. I don't think it would scale up necessarily, but it's still positive. Jamie, it turns out, wants information as well. He's been locked up since before the book started, after all, and his jailers keep feeding him fake news. They can help each other. Which is exactly what Catelyn hopes with regards to her daughters, though Jamie doesn't know that yet. Catelyn's not sure about that whole trust thing, though. She asks whether Jamie will answer truthfully. Which is kind of a useless question by definition, because if he's going to lie, he's just going to lie and say he'll tell the truth. But it gives Jamie an opportunity to introduce a key theme of his character. People don't really like truth, he says. They just claim that they do. In reality, we prefer fantasies and fictions spiked with just enough truth to delude ourselves. Jamie passes this on from Tyrion. He says this is something Tyrion always says. And on reread, the irony is clear. Jamie has kept a bitter truth from Tyrion regarding Tysha. Now, in part, what Jamie is doing here is just faux deep posturing. Oh, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Only I'm real enough to handle the truth. But defense mechanisms aside, Jamie has a point. Catelyn will, later in this conversation, think, I do not want to know this. The truth hurts, which is why Jamie reaches for the wine. Now that he knows Catelyn didn't poison it, there are truths he cannot face down sober. And I think, like, you know, we we often find that wine and alcohol removes our inhibitions, and some of his inhibitions can be to telling the truth in the case of Jamie Lannister. And there's a really great contrast here with the chapter we are just about to release for those who are watching our, our, our live stream on uh, Fever Dream, where with Joshua York spending an entire chapter monologuing his backstory with and all the secrecies hid from his friend Abner Marsh. When we talked about that chapter, we talked about how uh, there it's really it's a good chapter. It's one of the best in the book. But George opts for Joshua just to monologue on the truths rather than convey the information in a more interesting way. I think this game is that more interesting way that we get backstory to a song of ice and fire, demonstrating George's growth as a writer to make this conversation dynamic and exciting for us as readers. And, you know, I love the uh, the idea you were bringing up about this being the rules of the game, this being a game altogether. It's the Game of Thrones, not a fun game, but also one that must be played. Must in quotation marks, of course. But I also love how the game reminds us of the drinking games we played in our youth. You ever played Never Have I Ever? Who among us, right? Yeah. Don't, don't Never Have I Ever played Never Have I Ever. It's very Fuck. meta. Drink. <laughs> um, being the ones that come to mind, that, that's the one that came to my mind the most when I was thinking about this game. And in that, I look on these mid-30s people, because Jamie is 33, 34 years old, Catelyn is 34, 35 years old, and think that Jamie is still playing games because at heart, he, like Robert Baratheon, his sister Cersei, John Connington, Dora Martell, Barristan Selmy, and so many others in the story, their maturation really stopped at the tourney of Harrenhal and Robert's Rebellion. They're playing a game because they can't have a free exchange of ideas. They must play a drinking game to get at the truth. But again... This isn't fun. As you were saying, Catelyn is going to realize that she doesn't want to actually hear the truth as it starts to come out. And this is key. I don't think Jamie's having fun either. Sure, he's sarcastic, uses a lot of great wordplay, and gives the appearance of having a grand old time. But the reality is that these events that Jamie is about to talk about are Jamie's open, festering wounds in the story. It's almost as if Jamie is exfoliating the wounds, letting air and light in. He's treating Catelyn like a therapist, exposing his dirty secrets. The dirtiest, of course, being the incest 
and his children. I think both a drinking game and a therapy session, an impromptu therapy session, is a great way to think about what's going on here. And also a great way of capturing why it goes off the rails, because neither drinking games nor therapy sessions ever end up in quite the same place they start. (laughs) Now do they? That's kind of the point. Mm -hmm. So Jamie, as the very model of courtesy, allows the lady to have the first question. Catelyn, as an intelligent person, knows that she must prioritize her questions because she doesn't know how long the game will last. If she only gets one shot, she wants to uncover the secret at the heart of the war. Is Stannis' accusation true? Did Jamie father Cersei's kids? Rather than directly answer, Jamie points out that Catelyn would only ask that if it was already public knowledge, if word of that had spread while Jamie was in the cell. She wouldn't just have come up with that on her own. But Catelyn wants the truth from Jamie's own lips, she says. And this is a profoundly human desire. When we say we want the truth, we don't mean we want a list of bare facts in like a neutral objective tone. Mm-hmm. What we mean is the rush of catharsis, the power of someone specific admitting the truth. Catelyn desperately wants Jamie to confirm her priors. Humble yourself, humiliate yourself, admit that you sinned and you are what's wrong with the world. Only then do we stand a chance of making a better one. Jamie refuses to do that, in part because he's just not into humility as a rule, <laughs> but also because he perceives the blind spots in her worldview. Even when Jamie admits to his twin-cest coup, he does it casually with a shrug. Joffrey's mine, yeah, and yeah, I suppose the rest are, who cares? This seems like a chilling lack of concern for one's own children. When Jamie becomes a POV, we will learn that Cersei kept him at a distance. On reread, I also think that Jamie is deliberately shocking and antagonizing Catelyn, so as to deny her the catharsis she seeks, preventing her from taking refuge in her mind. Jamie's not weeping. He's not on his knees, cursing the world, begging forgiveness. He admits to this like it's on the level of faking a sick day. That's not the tone Catelyn was looking for. Didn't Jamie read the previous scenes? This is serious dramatic tragedy. And Jamie punctures all of that. He does. And I think like there's the alternative theory, so to speak, or analysis here is that Jamie's acting similar to his brother Tyrion when he dealt with Cersei back in Tyrion 12, when she tells him that I have your little whore. Recall how Tyrion refuses to say the name she and tries to play it off as no big deal. That same dynamic may be present here with Jamie admitting to fathering Cersei's children. It's no big deal, Catelyn. <laughs> it's the new thing. And did you know the Targaryens did it too? I mean, that's a point that Cersei is going to bring up in A Storm of Swords. But regardless, that said, I, I do think your interpretation is the more correct one as Jamie is attempting to get under Catelyn's skin by denying her catharsis. And that speaks to the nature of catharsis in A Song of Ice and Fire, as we've talked about many times in the past. Catelyn now retreating into her belief in the songs and stories once that moment when the evil and defeated Robert Knight admits how evil and bad he was. But Jamie denies this to Catelyn, much as George denies us catharsis in those fist-pumping moments in the story when drawn against the timeline of the series. I think that connection is exactly right. Both Jamie and George are kind of playing the same game. and So that kind of aligns Catelyn with the reader, frustrating trying to get some simple emotion out of this when it keeps being complicated. Catelyn keeps pressing Jamie, searching for that cathartic admission of wrongdoing. You admit to being your sister's lover? Say it. Say it out loud. I need this. Jamie's response is wonderfully slippery. Oh, I've always loved my sister. <laughs> for all that Jamie claims to be a bold truth teller, he is full of his own variety of bullshit. He dodges implications as much as everyone else and is forced to face that when he becomes a POV. 
This is also an admission on Jamie's part that he genuinely loves Cersei, which is not exactly a mutual feeling, as we will discover. Jamie says that Catelyn owes him two questions now, even though the second one was an extension of the first and he didn't actually answer it. So right away, this fragile peace and exchange of information falls apart, not even due to outright dishonesty, just slippages, little gaps and alienations that reveals they don't respect each other. Jamie, too, uses up both his questions on the same topic, his family. It's clearly been eating away at him not to know how they're, how they're doing. Catelyn answers first with the report of Stafford's death at the Battle of Oxcross. But Jamie doesn't care about Stafford. Why? Because, as he says, Cersei didn't care about <laughs> Stafford. And Jamie takes all his cues from Cersei. Jamie limits his scope of empathy to her, their father Tywin, and to Tyrion who he loves, his one defiance of Cersei. Catelyn, too, still has limits to her empathy, even as she tries to cut a deal with the Lannisters. She thinks that while Jaime's immediate family lives, she hopes that won't be the case for much longer. Even though her plan depends on Tyrion being very much alive and in power. Those are the tangled webs of the war at work, and those contradictions will grow around Catelyn, come a storm of swords. It's, again, such a human moment for Catelyn to trust that Tyrion will release Sansa in exchange for Jaime, while still hoping that Tyrion dies at the Battle of the Blackwater. That's not logical, but it's so human to wish your enemies dead, even as you consider doing something which will require Tyrion to be alive by the time Jaime reaches King's Landing. Now, something I, I kind of wonder about here, kind of batted back and forth in my mind, is it possible that Catelyn is subconsciously remembering the parlay before the parlay, when she and Stannis chatted, and Stannis promised that he would promised that he would return her daughters to her if he found them, Stannis would kill Tyrion and Cersei, and he would give Catelyn her daughters back, alive or dead. You can start to see the wheels in Catelyn's brain turning at the thought of a win-win. Either Stannis wins and he returns Catelyn's daughters, or Jaime shows up to the victorious Lannisters and Tyrion returns Sansa. Now, I'm not saying that this would have happened in practice, as we're going to talk about in the next Sansa chapter. Sansa is very much in danger if Stannis wins at the Battle of the Blackwater. But it does seem to be maybe the subconscious theory that Catelyn is starting to operate under. I totally agree. We will talk more about Catelyn's mindset and about the justifications for what she's doing a little later in the episode. So Jamie answers Catelyn's first question much more easily than she had expected. Well, what about the second question? Will he dare tell the truth about Bran's fall? Yes, he will. <laughs> Jamie confesses to attempted child murder as, casual, as casually as he confessed to the opposite, to the creation of children, as if they're equally meaningless to him. It takes Catelyn's breath away. The monstrous crime that afflicted her family, causing her so much heartache, so many sleepless nights, it broke her at some level. It ought to have broken Jamie even more, but it didn't. Even more than the act itself, I think it's Jamie's seeming lack of sorrow or seriousness that leads Catelyn to wish she could kill him then and there. The authors of Catelyn's despair don't even have the dignity to regard their sins with solemnity. Hmm. Bran isn't even important to Jaime as a victim. Only the memory of Catelyn's daughters holds her back. For the first-time reader, that's because Cersei would punish Sansa for any harm inflicted upon Jaime. But on reread, we know Catelyn needs Jaime whole for her trade. So instead, Catelyn once again tries to hold Jaime to account. As always, she falls back on the structures around her. You were a sworn knight. You, you were supposed to defend the, the weak and the innocent. Unlike Sandor, Jaime does not immediately respond by deconstructing the institution of knighthood. That comes later in the conversation. 
Instead, Jamie declares that Bran was spying on him and Cersei. Therefore, he was not among the innocents covered in his vows, and Jamie was kosher in throwing him from a tower. <laughs> this is highly dubious, to put it politely, and flaming horse shit, to put it more bluntly. Bran didn't know what he was going to see until he saw it. He didn't realize he was spying on something important. He was just climbing and heard voices. He didn't go up there to spy on the Lannisters. And even if he had, child murder is still frowned upon. Publicly, at least. Frowned upon, yeah. It's, child murder is definitely frowned unorthodox. upon. Unorthodox. Simply it's, not done. It's li- it's it's a little bit, yeah, unorthodox. It's a little bit, yeah, you don't want to necessarily do gauche. that. Yeah. People, people generally frown upon him. And to kind of put it in a boomer context that George is probably aware of, the real crime was Daniel Ellsberg leaking the Pentagon Papers. Not that Robert McNamara, Lyndon Johnson... JFK, Dwight Eisenhower all lied to the American public about the Vietnam War. In George's world, he puts the Pentagon Papers, though, in a defensible context for Jamie slash McNamara by having Jamie vocalize the dangers that leaking classified material means to hashtag the troops. And Jamie is definitely a goddamn troop. (laughs) Kidding aside, in in George's worldview, he thinks that Jamie has reasons to have done what he's doing. And there's more complexity behind the act on Jamie's part. As George said in a 2014 interview with Rolling Stone, Jamie believes that he's he's still doing a noble act by committing an act of child murder. Remember, Jamie isn't trying to kill Bran because he's an annoying little kid. This is George speaking, of course. Bran has seen something that is basically a death sentence for Jamie, for Cersei and their children. There are three actual children. So I've asked people who do have children, well, what would you do in Jamie's situation? They say, well, I'm not a bad guy. I wouldn't kill. Are you sure? Never? If Bran tells King Robert he's going to kill you and your sister lover and your three children. So in Jamie's opinion, him attempting to silence Bran was to preserve the lives of Joffrey, Marcella, and Tommen. Except when he does he exactly give a shit about these kids when he's exposed to them in the story? I mean, you were talking about it earlier how Cersei originally kept him apart from him. But also there's like that – I was rereading this today um, – when Jamie finds out about Joffrey's death, he's like, I wish I actually felt something about my own son dying. But he feels really nothing at all about them. Even here, just before we get this admission about Bran, Jamie's all like, yep, they're mine. Instead of, yes, they're mine. And I'm so worried for their welfare and safety. If my secret came out, it would mean my blood. My own blood was in peril. Now, that may be bravado on Jamie's part, never admitting to weakness. But what about when we get into Jamie's head when he becomes a point of view character? There's really nothing that Jamie feels emotionally when Joffrey dies. He's a rock without emotions I was talking about, telling Cersei, he is my seed, he's never called me my father, no more than Joffrey ever did. You warned me a thousand times never to show any undue interest in them. Of course, I think that's a deeply layered psychological response by Jamie with his cold response to his son's death built from reinforced behavior of never showing interest in Joffrey, translating to not actually having any interest in Joffrey. To me, I'm continuing on my death of the author bit here and go back and listen to our 10th episode on a Game of Thrones brand tour where we talk specifically about this and thinking that what Jamie states here about Bran and thus about his own children is consistent with his actions, namely his kind of dismissal of it all. So where would Jamie want to shift the blame on if it was fate that had Bran climb up to the window outside of his and Cersei's room? Naturally, Jamie then shifts blame to the gods. They were watching all of it, as Bran was watching us. They didn't intervene, and they could have. So, you know, blame them. In part, this is Jamie building his way up to the argument that the systems around them are corrupted and unjust, not just him as an individual. The gods watched and did nothing, just like the Kingsguard watched and did nothing. But in the moment, he is clearly dodging responsibility, as Catelyn points out. Jamie and Cersei are responsible for creating a situation upon which it would be fatal to intrude. They knew the consequences if anybody saw, and they went ahead anyway. 
Catelyn clearly has the upper hand on Jaime here. And then she promptly overplays it by bringing up the cat's paw, accusing Jaime of sending that man to kill Bran with a knife. As we've said before, this is probably the weakest plot point in the whole series, and we don't want to beat a dead horse on the specifics. <laughs> what matters here in terms of character is that Catelyn is faced with overwhelming evidence that Littlefinger lied to her, and she can't accept it. And she has to admit, Jamie and Tyrion are telling the exact same story about the knife, which would be impossible to coordinate given that they have been apart this whole time. But Catelyn hates the idea that the little brother figure from her cherished perfect childhood at River Run has grown into an enemy who has tricked her and her family into a war. She'd rather keep thinking of Jamie as her true enemy. He's so easy to hate. No complicated emotions there. His honor is easy to dismiss, and she does. She lashes out and kicks his shit across the floor, saying, Your honor is worth no more than this. And whatever you think of Jamie, that is really no way to treat a prisoner who has to, like, you know, as far as Jamie knows, he's going to stay in this cell with the right. shit across the floor. That's just no way to treat your prisoner. Awful. Just as Jamie predicted, Catelyn hungered for truth, but didn't care for the taste of it when he served it up. Now, he doesn't like the truth about Bran either, and the shit for honor insult gets under his skin as well. Jamie says that he is past caring what people think of him, but that's clearly not the case. He has reshaped himself around his reputation. Even as both Catelyn and Jamie claim to be putting forth their most honest selves, they can't help but flinch away, like touching a hot stove. Yeah, and Jamie's reaction against being accused of having shit for honor is so clutch here. I may have shit for honor. May is the optimal word. Jamie is holding back here, knowing that Westeros considers him to have acted dishonorably as a Kingsguard knight in service to Aerys II Targaryen. That's what Jamie evaluates himself against, and it's what Westeros evaluates him against. But notice that Catelyn isn't talking about that. She's talking about Jamie's actions with pushing Bran out of a windowsill, and then the second attempt on Bran's life. Of course, Jamie was innocent of the second attempt, not innocent of the first attempt. But bringing back to the longer view of this series and of Westerosi history, Catelyn traces Jamie's dishonor as a straight line from Arius to Bran. <laughs> That's just Catelyn in a nutshell. People are good or evil, and their past actions confirm her suspicions about the present. That worldview is challenged by Jamie as she realizes that he didn't send this cat's ball after Bran. Neither did Cersei or Tyrion. And that's one reason why I like the Joffrey as sending the cat's ball for the sake of Catelyn, refusing to believe that her childhood friend would betray her. That's cognitive dissonance at its best, and again, very human on Catelyn's part. Um, very human on Catelyn's part. More on this come a storm of swords. I agree. Even if the cat's ball stuff is, is creaky in terms of the actual revelation, it does feed very well into Catelyn's blind spots here. I think that works totally well. So from there, we shift back to the bigger picture. This war isn't just a private vendetta between the Stark and Lannister clans, after all. What of the Baratheons, Jamie asks. Have Robert's brothers taken the field? They have, Catelyn says. Full stop. <laughs> okay, that's not exactly honoring the spirit of their deal, as Jamie says. Again, the question of how much they can trust. You have to give me more information than that. Catelyn reluctantly elaborates on what she saw in the South. Renly was murdered via sorcery by Stannis, who was now marching on King's Landing. Jamie says that's a pity, as he liked Renly, but uh, not so much Stannis. <laughs> a revealing glimpse as to where Jamie's head is at. Both Baratheons posed a threat to Jamie and his children. Both Baratheons had plans in place to sweep the Lannisters from power. Renly, however, never, Renly, however, never made Jamie feel bad about it, so he gets a pass. <laughs> Remember, what Jamie hates most is being judged, and Stannis's whole thing is judging people. Gendry told us that before we even met Stannis. 
I'm sure Jamie was also responding to a clear threat from Stannis in terms of the succession. If Renly had been the elder brother, this might have worked out differently. As he does throughout A Clash of Kings, George frames Renly and Stannis as perfectly matched opposites, a contrast working its way through everything. Everyone has just perfect opposite opinions on Renly and Stannis. Exactly. And I think like here with Jamie's opinion about Renly to me indicates that Renly's optics game was really, really strong. So strong that even Jamie, who is his enemy, likes him. And this despite also Renly's conspiracy to plant Marjorie into Robert's bed as he likely knew the truth of who the father of Cersei's kids were. Renly could charm anyone with a smiling face while holding a knife behind it. Kind of an interesting parallel here is how Tyrion regards Robert Baratheon earlier in A Clash of Kings. Tyrion had rather liked Robert Baratheon, great blustering oaf that he was, doubtless in part because his sister loathed him so. Tyrion related to Robert due to both Cersei not liking him, but also that Robert's drunken lechery was a similar current with Tyrion's own drunken lechery. You see how Jaime would have liked Renly is similar to him. The courtly manners, the smiling, handsome face. Jaime sees a coal mirror in his own. Not so the case with Stannis, who appears to be the personification of justice. To the point, it was Stannis who had a different take on what should have happened with Jaime after Robert's rebellion. As Stannis says, the eunuch should have never been pardoned, no more than the Kingslayer. At the least, Robert should have stripped the white cloak from Jaime and sent him to the wall as Lord Stark urged. He listened to John Aaron instead. Like we were talking about last week, the thing undergirding Jamie's anger at the new ruling class is how they climbed into power through him killing Ares and then spurned him as the Kingslayer. Stannis wanted to take wanted to go one step further by taking away the white cloak and sending Jamie to the wall. So Jamie joins the long list of fuck that Stannis guy characters in the story, and that list is only growing. <laughs> that sure is. And of course, near the top of that list is the Tyrells. And Jamie next inquires after the Tyrells, quite sensibly, as they are the most powerful single faction in Westeros. Catelyn says the Tyrells were backing Renly at first, and now she doesn't know. Jamie sees another opening there, another potential weakness. So Rob hasn't made any new allies, huh? He must be feeling lonely. Catelyn responds by rattling off Rob's resume. He's won this, he's won that battle, he's gonna win this battle next. There is a tragic note to this on reread. In the build-up to and aftermath of the Red Wedding, multiple characters note that Rob won every battle, but it didn't help him win the war. Catelyn doesn't realize that the rules are going to change around her, that Rob will fall short by a hidden metric. Jamie says that Rob hasn't faced Tywin yet, and anyway, Rob only defeated Jamie with a Craven's trick that took him unawares. Again, the bitter irony. Tywin will not defeat Rob in the field, but with a Craven's trick that takes him unawares in a far less even-handed fashion than Rob beating Jamie at the Whispering Wood. These blustering pretensions give way to the insecurity and rage at the heart of House Lannister. Catelyn points out that Jaime has no right to talk of tricks, not after Tyrion sent in false envoys to try and free him. Jaime flips the script, saying Rob would do the same thing to free Bran and Rickon. Now, it's worth noting, I think, that Rob did not send false envoys to free Sansa. He tried to keep those diplomatic norms alive, unlike the Lannisters. But that's not the point for Catelyn. The point for her is that Bran and Rickon are dead. Even if Rob wanted to fight fire with fire regarding these dishonorable tactics, it's just too late. She won't share that pain with Jamie, however, she thinks. Even though they might have some things in common, even though they might act similarly if the shoes were on the other feet, Catelyn still feels all alone in her grief. I think Jamie makes a stronger, we are the same, you and I, argument, <laughs> 
When he says that Tyrion will have little hope of ransoming Jaime through the proper channels, Rob is never going to give him up. As such, if Tyrion ever wants to see his brother again, he kinda has to bend the rules. Catelyn doesn't have a comeback for that, because it's true. She's only down here because it's true. She's about to bend the rules herself in order to try and get Sansa back, because she knows Rob will reject the official way. And Rob will reject sending Jaime back officially, in large part, because of his lords. Like Rickard Stark, whose, jun whose sons Jaime slew in battle, as Catelyn now brings up. Catelyn is again trying to provoke Jaime into shame for his actions, but Jaime just doesn't feel bad about killing the Karstarks. Here, I think he's on more solid ground than he was with Bran. It was battle. They had swords and hands. As Catelyn herself said at the time, they were there to die for Rob. This doesn't exactly make Jaime a monster. It does make him politically radioactive, which in Jaime's mind justifies Tyrion trying to break him out, even though that made him more politically radioactive than ever. Suffice to say, this is not going how Catelyn planned. Instead of clarity, everything is more muddled than before, because Jaime is not fitting neatly into the little box she has for him in her mind, just as Jaime the character is starting to change shape in the mind of the reader. And I think part of what hamstrings Catelyn's arguments with Jaime is that she is grounding her arguments both in the conventional wisdom that she so embodies and she also is limiting herself to arguments that benefit her particular side. That Jamie was out in the field altogether, fighting as a commander for Tywin and the Lannisters, while Robert Baratheon was still alive, is a spot where Catelyn would have a point and more pull in winning the argument. But Catelyn focuses in on the individual. You killed people at the expense of the actual ethical argument about Jamie's conduct. He was prosecuting an illegal war and breaking the king's peace while the king that he had sworn to serve was still alive. Now, this is not the last time this is going to happen with Jamie, of course, as he will fight on behalf of an illegitimate regime known as the Lannisters in the Riverlands that has built itself on the atrocity of the Red Wedding. And like there, Jamie will always ground his actions only in individual terms. I didn't want to go, but at least I didn't technically lift a sword against the Starks or Tullys and never consider that he's still doing the overall wrong thing. That conflict in A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons is only the latest iteration for Jamie about those types of things that he has orders from Tommen and has vowed to Catelyn as we'll chat about towards the end of this podcast. But man, that's just O's for you, isn't it? Jamie says that any other knight would have killed the Karstarks. That's not about him being a villain. That's the nature of power and war. Sandor said the same thing to Sansa. What do you think knights are for? Chivalry sates the crowd, inspires the singers, but knights are for killing. Catelyn insists otherwise. A knight exists to uphold his vows. They are embodiments of the values she believes in, and Jaime betrayed those values. Jaime has broken every oath he ever swore. Therefore, he is no true knight. Westeros is forsaken because of all those individual weaknesses added up. This is the core of Catelyn's worldview. And Jaime is now just sad and drunk enough to take dead aim at it, instead of evading it with witticisms. He does so with one of the great monologues in the series, one of the most quoted passages in A Song of Ice and Fire. You'll find it all over social media bios, <laughs> elaborate gift sets, even tattoos. This is writing that resonates with people. Why is that? Because with a single paragraph, Jamie uproots all the cultural topsoil between himself and Catelyn to get at something universal. 
The problem, Jamie says, is not that we are all hopeless sinners who fail to live up to our perfect ideals. The problem is the ideals themselves. Their society is addicted to vows, the performance of values. Their society has confused surface for substance, imposing song frameworks on reality. In the process, their society has ignored the question of what it actually means for a given individual to make sense of those values. Jamie argues that while a given oath might make sense on its own, it will inevitably come into contradiction with another equally important oath. George, through Jamie, is arguing that the essence of maturation is recognizing that everything is more than the sum of its parts. Just as Catalan's view of Jamie is too simplistic to capture the whole, so too is her view of her society and its values. She wants to believe that if everyone gets in line and, beha- and gets in line and behaves, they will live in a good world. Jamie counters that it is impossible to get in line and behave even if you wanted to because the rules contradict each other. Obey the laws. Sounds good. Obey the king. But what if the king is breaking the laws? (laughs) How can you honor the crown, your family, and the people if they all have different interests and are working at cross-purposes? Jamie is, of course, talking specifically about the Mad King, as he will make explicit in just a minute. But this passage resonates because it touches upon the whole of human experience across every border. Anyone who has ever tried to wield power or raise children or worship a mysterious god has run headlong into this dilemma. No matter what you do, Jamie says, you fail. No matter what you do, you're forsaking one value or the other. They cannot coexist. No matter what motivates this specific war or that one, The human heart, in conflict with itself, is always lurking underneath the Game of Thrones. Peace is difficult to create, in part because of our bullshit power structures, but also because peace is difficult to imagine. Hmm. We are ultimately monkeys with anxiety. In truth, peace awaits us only in the grave. And maybe not even then, if the others have their way. Their zombies are metaphors for the ghosts we carry with us. Memories come to claim us. The bitter truth beneath belief. Catalin is persisting on thinking of her values as isolated ideals, one-on-one tests you either pass or fail. Jamie is forcing her to consider these ideals in context with each other, like the seven gods who are one. That's why he brings up the faded glory of his youth. I was the youngest man to wear a white cloak. I was a legend out of the song. And now I understand that I was a mummer's dragon. Something to wave for the cheering crowd, my shining cloak covering up the truth. Jamie's Oaths monologue articulates the difference between thinking in individuals and thinking in systems more succinctly than any textbook, and it delivers an emotional wallop to every reader. It forces us to contemplate the contradictions we have navigated in our own lives, the ways in which the things we believe make it impossible for us to live honestly. Jamie has gone from a one-note villain to one of the most complex and challenging characters in the story in the space of a paragraph. What an accomplishment. Yeah, man, that was awesome and brilliant. What an accomplishment on your parts in that monologue. That was fantastic. And Oh, hush. You know, it, it's it, for George, this is an accomplishment that's born from from the guarding style, the thing that he talks about that inspires the way that he writes a song of ice and fire. I mean, you were bringing up last week about how the original Jimmy was just a straight up villain killing his way onto the Iron Throne. And here we see how George guarded his way into a fantastic and challenging character in the form of Jamie Lannister. 
he was never originally intended as a point of view character. George, probably influenced by his examination of knighthood in the Hedge Knight, struck gold with molding Jamie into a human character with real inner conflict. And as George is always saying, the human heart in conflict is the only thing worth writing about. I, you know, I was nodding before and I, I to what you were saying, and I relate to Jamie in my own life. No, no, not, not the child murders and the incest part. This part, the vows, the conflicts between those vows. That one little line about all of the swirling vows sums it up so well. It's too much. God, I feel that, man. I mean, I took an oath of office to obey the orders of the President of the United States and the officers appointed over me and also honor the Constitution, regulations, and the Uniform Code of Military Justice. There's never been any conflict over those before, right? Hmm. So I also think about this in terms of like Stannis when he's talking about supporting Robert or Ares during Robert's Rebellion. That was a hard choosing. My blood or my liege, mm -hmm. my brother or my king. You could see how people would be made miserable or even driven mad in attempting to resolve the conflicts that Jamie has dealt with. I feel that sometimes. But Jamie has not gone mad because he has decided not to resolve these conflicts. Jamie is an ultimate individualist, seeing himself as making the impossible choice by breaking his own vow to protect the king in order to satisfy his other vows, protect the innocent slash defend the weak. Catelyn demands to know why Jamie can still call himself a knight, and Jamie Lannister, drunk and bitterly nostalgic, can look at Westeros, a land awash in chivalry and knights who stood, saw, and did nothing, as we'll talk about here in a moment, or actively participate, tid, or participate, when atrocity occurs and says, yep, at least I, me, Jamie Lannister, the individual, finally did something when no one else would. And you mentioned the kind of the aura of madness. It's like a, like Catch-22. It kind of has the that era of, of writing filter, that kind of 60s, 70s kind of kind of bitterness surrounding a lot of uh, a lot of foreign policy. And so Jamie was remembering his brief glory days as a child prodigy, and then Catelyn takes that away. Now, you may have been the youngest ever to wear the white cloak, but you became the youngest ever to betray it too. Kingslayer, she calls him. An epithet spat at Jamie wherever he goes. This is why he is considered a man with shit for honor. Jamie responds by confronting the hypocrisy at the heart of this attitude. And what a king he was. <laughs> if everyone acknowledges that Eris was a mentally ill tyrant, why is Jamie so despised for removing him from power? As Robert said in Book 1, someone had to kill Eris. The rebellion was inexorably headed in that direction. Who cares which hand held the knife? Well, Ned argued that it mattered because Jamie tainted the Kingsguard. Worse, he tainted Robert's throne with his oath-breaking. Brienne makes the same argument in A Storm of Swords. Eris was mad and cruel. No one has ever denied that. He was still king, crowned, and anointed, and you had sworn to protect him. There is a gigantic flaw in these arguments that Jaime now finally makes plain to the reader. If someone as unfit and dangerous as the Mad King could continue to wield power after the extent of his condition became clear, these institutions were already hopelessly corrupt before Jamie ever pulled his sword out. If the rule you believed in led you here, of what use was the rule? Ned and Brienne refuse to acknowledge the possibility that their beloved network of oaths is precisely what allowed the Mad King to stay in power for as long as he did. The Kingsguard Knights were best poised to do something about Eris. He trusted them, even after he stopped trusting everyone else. They were witness to all the worst of his crimes. No one else could have stopped them if they tried to intervene, but they didn't. Why? Was it because these great knights were secretly paranoid sadists like Eris and they were enjoying his crimes? Was it because they were evil individuals? No. And that's the point. 
They went along with it because of the systems around them. Their worldviews told them to stick to their oaths, and so they stuck to their oaths even in the face of abuses of power that the worldviews never prepared them for. Jamie thinks he should have been treated like a hero. Instead, he was treated like a villain. To him, that demonstrated that their society has no clue what actually constitutes heroism and villainy, despite all the songs saying so. Right. And I mean, like Jamie's compatriots and Eris, the second Kingsguard, all considered the best knights in the realm, honorable knights, the cream of chivalry, the people that Ned Stark looks at and says, ah, those were men of great renown. As he tells Bran, all fell back on their oaths when they witnessed their king commit atrocity. And we'll talk about this line here a little bit later on. But I love this line from Gerald Hightower as he tells Jamie after the event we're about to talk about, you swore an oath to guard the king, not to judge him. Now, Jamie sarcastically refers to Gerald as, oh, a better man than him, I'll agree, knowing that this chivalrous knight, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, retreated morally into his vows like a coward when the king was committing murder. But vows, like laws, are a reflection of what society values and holds dear. And when those vows prevent otherwise good honorable men like Barristan Selmy, Gerald Hightower, Arthur Dane, Jonathan Derry, Lewin Martell, Oswald went from standing up to tyranny, then maybe the whole goddamn system is rotten. I mean, back in George R. Martin, back, back in George R. Martin, back in 2012, George R. Martin was asked, Arthur Dane has been presented as the quintessential chivalrous knight. How could he support the atrocities of errors that even Jamie was horrified by? And George's response was, well, keep reading. To me, this signals that the Kingsguard Knights had plans to do something, namely to overthrow Aerys II and replace him with Rhaegar, hence why they were guarding Rhaegar's son, John, rather than fight at the Trident. Rhaegar, admittedly, would have been an improvement over Aerys II, no doubt. Robert was an improvement over Aerys II as well, though not by much. But that's kind of the point, right? Replacing Aerys with Rhaegar or Robert didn't put the realm to rights. A good king could be followed by a bad king. Good King Jaehaerys was succeeded by Viserys I. Viserys II was succeeded by Aegon IV. Joffrey succeeded Robert. And Euron Greyjoy succeeded Balon Greyjoy. It goes on and on and on. These vows are underpinning a rotten political foundation in Westeros. And changing the musty old carpet won't help anyone when the foundation of the House of the Dragon is crumbling underneath. And how is it that Gerald Hightower morally squared being at the Tower of Joy rather than at the Trident as recounted in Ned's Tower of the Joy fever dream? We swore a vow. Swearing a vows is not enough, guys. This was the status quo, which Jamie is being accused of forever ruining. And he is done keeping his anger and loneliness about that inside him. The combination of deprivation and drunkenness sends him reeling back in time to his traumatic rebirth. Eris's red blood on his golden blade. The Lannister colors, he says, they made him who he is. Jamie's proud of it, even though it broke his life apart forever. It's the one thing he did that still makes sense to him. Catelyn says only a man like him would be proud of that. Jamie reminds her, there's no men like me, only me. I'm all alone. Only I made this decision, and only I bear the consequences. The Kingsguard keeps the king's secrets, after all. And now Jamie starts sharing those secrets. Partially to break Catelyn's holier-than-thou attitude, but also to unburden himself of the pain. Do you really know what happened? Jamie asks Catelyn, back when we were young and beautiful. Did Ned ever tell you his truth? The tragic backstory that made him so old and afraid before his time? A broken man in your bed? She doesn't know, and neither do we. As first-time readers... 
We haven't troubled to wonder much about the deaths of Ricard and Brandon Stark, in all likelihood. We might be inclined to agree with Catelyn. Dead is dead. They're gone, it was wrong, and Eris was overthrown for it. What use digging deeper? Well, that mindset, Jamie argues, is precisely what has allowed abuses of power to continue. We memory hold them because they're so painful, but in doing so, we make ourselves powerless to stop them from happening. Catelyn does not want to know this, as she thinks. She does not want to remember Brandon. Jamie forces her to. Remember him. Remember the kind of man he was. Less like Ned, more like me, the man you claim to despise. Catelyn has buried Brandon Stark very deep, and it hurts to recall how close they came to a life together before he turned aside to King's Landing and his doom. Yeah, and this is going to be the first time that Jamie will be so triggered by someone hanging him with the Kingslayer epithet that he'll reveal a horrible truth about Ares, and it also is not going to be the last time this happens as well. With Catelyn, Jamie goes for the jugular, refusing to let people get away with, Brand was murdered by Ares. How dreadful. He wants people to remember the real errors and the monstrosity of his conduct that Jamie was witness to. And so he chooses to tell Catelyn the truth of Brandon Stark and Rickard Stark's deaths to try and shake Catelyn's worldview loose. You want to call me the Kingslayer? Let's examine who the Mad King really was. It's that same sort of motif that George will use again that will finally push Jamie over the edge with Brienne in A Storm of Swords as she will repeatedly call him the Kingslayer rather than his own name and she does it when he's handless and in the bathtub at Harrenhal and whoops, Jamie is revealing the details about quote-unquote Mad Eris. Of that note, of the Mad King, I wonder where, whether Eris' nickname of Mad King works to obfuscate his terrible deeds. No one needs to know what specific actions Ares undertook to demonstrate his unfitness for office. The name works alone. But Jamie is here to rip away the words we use to hide from the truth because it remains too much. Now, it's not that Jamie is doing a hard truths cut both ways bit like Stannis is doing in just Clash of Kings and A Storm of Swords. He's not doing this from any sense of altruism towards Catelyn Stark either. The sense I get from this scene we're about to unpack is that He's looking at Catelyn and seeing her as damning him for killing the king he was sworn to protect. And now he's going to damn her right back with the truth about that said king. I think, yeah, that's a, that's a great point about the way Mad King as like an epithet is used to cover up any specifics. He's just crazy. That's all you need to know. He was crazy and now he's dead. Mm -hmm. Why would you possibly want to know any further about this? What are you crazy too? But as Jamie's pointing out, that isn't, isn't that, you know, nicely convenient? You just get to kind of separate that from yourself and act like you had kind of no involvement and no one had to know. And now we're, we're have to, having to get back to the specific decision points and plunge mm -hmm. back into the kind of the feeling of it actually happening. So about, yeah, back in the backstory. Word had reached Brandon of Rhaegar absconding with Lyanna. And then Brandon ran off to King's Landing. Hoster raged against this accident of history in Catalan's memory, the whims of individual agency at work. Hoster had a conspiracy in place to resolve everything. And Brandon fucked it all up. <laughs> Jamie recalls the spectacle of Brandon riding into the Red Keep like a hero out of the songs, roaring for Rhaegar to come out and die. He was accompanied by others. More lords, sons, as Jamie recalls. But Catelyn knows their names. How strange, she thinks to herself. I haven't, I haven't thought about these names in years. And that's how memory works. Some things you bury too deep to recall. Other details float immediately to the surface. And there, there is no real logic to it. The point is how painful it is to engage with the past, and how that pain has worked itself out through both individuals and the systems around them. Catelyn remembers their names. 
That's how you honor people. That's how you keep the dead alive. Names on gravestones, on plaques and memorials. Catalan remembers the official canonized history and neatly lays it out to Jamie. Eris had them all killed without trial, and so we went to war. This is not factually inaccurate, <laughs> but it is clearly incomplete. It's impossible to really reckon with what happened, and is still happening, without digging deeper. Jamie is here to escort Catalan past the cover-up. I was there. I saw it all. I cannot forget. I cannot say dead is dead and be blissful in my ignorance. Jamie doesn't know the names, the official history. He's like, ah, they were Lord's sons, whatever, I don't remember. Instead, he knows the unofficial history. Never written down, never made public, belonging to him. What actually happened in the Red Keep is that Eris offered Rickard Stark a trial by combat. He armored himself for a duel, following his social norms wherein this divide could be settled and society could more or less keep on rolling. As Jamie says, Rickard thought he'd be fighting one of the Kingsguard, maybe Jamie himself. That's how this sort of thing is supposed to work. Instead, the Mad King's pyromancers suspended him in a cage high above the throne room and began building a pyre beneath him. Eris told Rickard that fire itself is the champion of House Targaryen. If Rickard wanted to prove Brandon's innocence, he just had to not burn. Eris then made Brandon watch with a noose around his neck, promising that Rickard would die unless his son could free him. Both Stark men died, of course. Brandon strangled himself, trying to get loose, and Rickard's flesh melted into his armor. George describes the bile rising in Catalan's throat as she listens to this, and the reader feels the same way. This is a nightmare scenario. We have gone from Shakespearean tragedy to full-on horror. Imagine yourself in Rickard's place. Imagine the moment the cage door slams shut behind you. Imagine your confusion followed by a horrible dawning awareness. No, surely not. The king is not that crazy. He cannot think he'll get away with this. Someone will stop him. They must. I can see them. They can see me. Barristan Selmy, Lewin Martell, Gerald Hightower. I know you. I've drunken with you. I've, I've jousted with you. Hmm. I'm Lord Rickard Stark of Winterfell. I can't die this way. But he did. He died one of the most painful deaths imaginable, and his son had to watch. Brandon wanted only to be the hero and save the day. In his efforts to do so, he literally got himself killed, strangling himself in his desperation to reach his sword and cut his father loose. Brandon and Ricard were adults. They were not unintelligent. Brandon was capable of restraint and reading the room, as we see in his duel with young Littlefinger. The mistake they made was in their assessment of how power works. They believed the systems around them would work to constrain obviously unfit individuals. They learned far too late that the systems around them are, in fact, easily hijacked by those unfit individuals. See also Euron Crozai. Aaron thought the king's moot would bring down Euron. It only made him stronger. And I think, like, too, we, we've talked about this in the Forsaken episodes, but Euron Crozai has weaponized an already toxic mentality of the old way and made that to be something even more horrific than we could possibly imagine and we see the same with Eris the second using the trial by combat and distorting it as a practice and also notice too in this same chapter jamie talks about all of the squires that have been brought 
that were taken captive with Brandon and how Ares ordered all of their fathers to come down. There's no sense that any of these people got any trial by battle or trial by combat. Ares just had them executed along with the squires, except for Ethan Glover. And, you know, this is just a distortion of a Westerosi norm. But again, as we've talked about for these norms, are they necessarily good? No, they are not. But the perversion of them can make something even worse. So I think like the, the other thing is the argument, the correct argument was that the Targaryens had gone too far in violating political norms in killing Rickard Stark when he came to ask for Brandon's release. And this, along with Eris calling for Robert and Ned's heads, led to a justifiable rebellion, in my opinion. Brandon Stark rolling into King's Landing, calling for Rhaegar to come out and die. You can understand why Eris might arrest him at the very least. But murdering Rickard Stark was the final act of aggression by a sovereign against his Lord Paramount. Rickard Stark came to King's Landing peacefully without an army to ask for his son's release, and Ares responded with cruelty and murder. Horrific murder. And everyone in King's Landing stood by and let it happen. This is the shadow that power can cast on the wall. No one had to obey the king. The king's men who were loading Rickard into the cage could have said no. The king's guard who were all standing around the throne room, around the throne room could have rushed in to save Rickard. The 500 men that Jamie says in the throne show that were present and were silent as a crypt, any one of them could have come out and saved Brandon Stark from the noose around his neck. Barristan Selmy, the famed knight in Kingsguard who stopped to finish writing his white book entry on his way out of King's Landing, stood, saw, and did nothing. And that ultimately is Jamie's message to Catelyn, that inertia and power are just more important in this world we live in than whether or not you're a good person. It's not just that the horrible thing happened, but that all of the good men Catelyn considers to be of stronger moral fiber than Jamie stood there, watched, and did nothing. Jamie only got through it by filling his head with thoughts of Cersei. That explains so much of Jamie's psychology right there. He's still so obsessed with his sister in part because while fucking her, he can forget these traumas. These were formative years for him. He was still a young man reliant on what was supposed to be the wisdom of his elders to guide him. One of those elders, Gerald Hightower, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, took him aside afterward and said, You swore a vow to guard the king, not to judge him. <laughs> it's difficult to express what a loathsome sentiment this is. All of the hypocrisy and culpability of Westeros regarding the Mad King is summarized. This is every I-was-only-following-orders excuse that every flunky of every monster offers up after the fact. Systemic injustices do not require everyone to be a giggling sadist. They just require inertia, passivity, and inherent baked-in preference for not making waves. All evil needs is good men doing nothing. Now, George is wise enough to know that one good man doing something is not nearly enough on its own to vanquish evil. You gotta think in systems. Jamie did what Brandon was trying to do, albeit more successfully. Pull out your sword, take down the tyrants, become a big damn hero. <laughs> did that save the day for Westeros? No, because killing Eris left in place the political and cultural systems that had given him free reign. The next king, Robert, had no larger critique to offer than Targaryens suck. As Tywin says, Robert knew he needed Rhaegar's children dead, but he didn't want to do it himself because that's not what heroes do, that's what mad kings do. Jamie feels the same way about his terrible reputation. You all needed Aerys dead, but none of you wanted to do it. 
I took it upon myself. So now he lives in a world that hates him and calls him Kingslayer while hero-worshipping the memory of Gerald Hightower, who thought the most important takeaway from the deaths of Rickard and Brandon Stark was that Jamie not dare to judge these horrific murders. That's so fucked up. And I mean, like, also, too, like, you have to consider the context of who Jamie Lannister is here. Because Jamie was really, really young when all of this occurred. Probably 16 years old when Brandon and Rickard are murdered by Aerys II. And the knights in shining armor are telling him that he took an oath to protect the king when he is not vocalizing, as far as we can tell, his judgment, but perhaps even looking judgeful and resentful of, of Aerys II. You know, I was rereading Jamie's sixth chapter from A Storm of Swords when Jamie dreams of his former brothers in the Kingsguard who all damn him for breaking his vow to save Aerys. And Jamie responds that Aerys was going to burn the city. And Jonathan Derry says, he was your king, the same way that the other parent might tell an abused child, he is your father. At the same level, I always wonder what would have happened if these knights, if these other Kingsguard knights were in Jamie's place at the very end of Robert's Rebellion. Would Barrison have stood by and allowed Eris to nuke King's Landing? Yeah, I kind of think they would, and Barrison specifically. Notice that if there was some sort of conspiracy to overthrow Eris at the tourney of Harrenhal in 281, the burning of the burning of Rickard and Brandon occurred after these white cloaks had tried to go for Rhaegar, and yet they were still willing to, they were still willing to let atrocity occur in the smaller scale of these two people. But what is scale when compared to the vows that these jerks value above apparently everything else in the realm? Yeah, I mean, it's and that that question of scale you bring up is so important because that that's that you see that within this scene even like remember how this conversation started. It didn't. It didn't start with with anything to do with what, what these issues are talking about. Now, Catelyn didn't come down here to unravel this backstory, but this conversation is about more than the specific deal that she wants to make. It's about everything informing how these two people look at one another, the changing backdrop against which their individual decisions take place. It's about how their generation got here, and just as Catelyn resisted the truth about Littlefinger, she resists the implications of Jaime's story. She admits to herself it's probably true. It's so memorably hideous that she can't believe Jamie made it all up. But all she does in response is move the goalposts. Oh, so what if Eris really was that horrible? Are you, slaying, are you saying you slew him to avenge the Starks? She's trying to dodge Jamie's point, which is that keeping your oaths in such a nightmare scenario starts to seem absurd, even evil in itself. <laughs> Jamie, of course, is used to such dismissals. Even now, when he's exposed more of himself than ever before, he just gets shit on for it. Honesty gets him nothing, so Jamie has developed sarcasm and belligerence as defense mechanisms. I didn't do it for the Starks. The Starks were nothing to me, he says. And they still are, he implies. There is still no one like me. Only me. Even in confession, I am alone. In the past, as in the present, the conventional wisdom shies away from the truth and punishes Jamie for daring to look at it in the face. In the present, Catelyn still acts like Jamie did the wrong thing. In the past, Jamie was forced to beg forgiveness from Robert for making sure his throne was empty for him. <laughs> Even Ned scorned Jamie. Ned, whose father and brother were murdered by the king Jamie slew. Jamie says Ned should have thanked him, but all Ned cared about was Jamie sitting on what was now Robert's throne. Back in the pitch letter, and even in book one, the image of Jamie on the throne, as Ned described it, was a sign of Lannister avarice. And now, brilliantly, 
it becomes a sign of projected Lannister avarice, the assumption of bad faith. We just look at that like he must be a villain and we're not thinking critically about it. If everyone is just going to assume that Jaime is a villain, why should he bother trying to be anything else? Tyrion feels the same way in A Storm of Swords. Jaime says that Ned loved Robert more than he ever loved his brother Brandon, or their father Ricard, or even his young bride Catelyn. After all, he was never unfaithful to Robert, was he? To Jamie, the fact that the honorable, judgmental Ned Stark had a bastard is more proof of social hypocrisy. Oh, they call that bastard Snow, so white and pretty like the Kingsguard cloaks when we swear our vows. It's all lies covering up the truth. Ironically, on reread, we know that Jamie has actually fallen for a cover-up. John is not Ned's bastard. Ned, like Jamie, soiled his honor to do the right thing and then kept it as a secret. These people who think they are opposites have a lot in common. As with the Ned versus Cersei showdown in the Red Keep Godswood in Book 1, the divides of the war obscure a deeper commonality. Stark or Lannister, we are all the Roberts Rebellion generation, and we are all broken because of what really happened when we were young. At the start of this chapter, Catelyn had been plunged into fresh grief about Bran and Rickon. Now she has peeled back time to unlock stale grief, pain that has sunk its roots in deep over time, transforming her and her enemies alike. Jamie might be wrong about where John comes from, but I think he's right that Ned loved Robert more than his own father, brother, and even wife. Like, remember when Catelyn walked in on the Godswood in book one and Ned was very distant, formal, how are the children? But then <laughs> Catelyn said Robert was coming and Ned's face just burst into smiles and laughter. There it is. Ned had never met Catelyn until the day they married, and they were only marrying because Brandon was dead. Their relationship has been overshadowed by grief, haunted by what could have been. Robert, though, was an ideal in Ned's mind. The perfect king, muscled like a maiden's fantasy. A hero stepped out of the songs into real life. But then Robert got old and died. So too did Ned. And now here Jamie and Catelyn are, with the pieces of the broken world they left behind. Jamie, of course, frames all of this as a bitter joke. Gallo's humor is all he has left, now that earnest attachments have been burned away. Catelyn says she finds nothing amusing about you, Kingslayer. Again, she falls back on that epithet. The convenient definition of Jamie as the sort of obvious storybook mustache-twirling villain responsible for all the world's sins. This, in spite of everything Jamie has just told her. Catelyn asked for truth, and then just as Jamie predicted, she did not like it. Kingslayer pokes into the wound Jamie just reopened, so naturally he's not happy about it. He falls back on more crude sexual innuendo. I don't think either Catelyn or Jamie is coming off particularly well here. Mm-mm. Beneath the posturing, however, is more pain. I was, remi- I was reminded throughout this reread of, of this chapter of the classic play No Exit. In the play, several people are confined to a room together in what appears to be the afterlife, and they promptly start making each other miserable, leading to the famous climactic line, Hell is other people. This line is often taken out of context, and so the precise meaning is obscured. It's more specific than just other people are uh, annoying or unbearable. (laughs) What no exit exposes as hellish about human interaction is that you have no power over how another person sees you. Hell is other people in the sense that you are permanently trapped within the perspective of others. There is no exit from the eye of the beholder. And Jamie would agree. 
even after telling Catelyn the truth, or part of it anyway, he is still the vile Kingslayer in her mind's eye, and there is nothing he can do about it. A Clash of Kings, Catelyn 7, ends on a cliffhanger. We don't know what Catelyn is about to do with Brienne's sword. Given how insulting Jamie is being, we might assume she is about to maim or kill him with it. How appropriate that a chapter all about hidden truths ends with a hidden truth. Catelyn frees Jamie, which we will only find out about in A Storm of Swords. Catelyn is the only POV character in A Clash of Kings who exits the book before the Battle of Blackwater. And that kinda has to be the case. After the Blackwater, Catelyn would be much less likely to free Jamie, even in her grief. As first-time readers, we are left wondering what happened here for the rest of the book. On reread, knowing what happened, the emotional qualities stand out more to me than the suspense and the mystery. No matter what Catelyn is about to do with that sword, it will not fix their forsaken world, any more than Jaime was able to fix everything with his sword. She could cut Jaime's tongue out, and it wouldn't erase the devastating words he has spoken. In A Storm of Swords, we will learn that Catelyn came away from this conversation with a fledgling scrap of hope. In isolation, however, this chapter leaves us and Catelyn in the same place where we came in, all alone with the dark night as the shadows close in. That's a great way to close Catelyn Stark's story in A Clash of Kings for sure. And I think, you know, earlier in A Clash of Kings, Tyrion said, when you tear out a man's tongue, you are not proving him a liar. You're only telling the world that you fear what he might say. Here, the truth is cut, Catelyn, and you'd understand her emotionally not objectively, factually speaking, if she decided to have Brienne stab Jamie right then and there. But Jamie has proven one thing to Catelyn. He may be a monster, a creature in Catelyn's eyes, but he's an honest monster, an honest creature. That question of Jamie as a monster that we're left with at the end of Catelyn's story in A Clash of Kings is going to animate so much of what his journey in A Storm of Swords is going to be about. And it's going to be so much of what Brienne and Jamie's interactions early in A Clash of Kings, the first Jamie chapter in A Storm of Swords, is all about whether Jamie is actually a monster or not. So too will the Kingslayer versus Wench name calling in lieu of using their actual names be a prominent feature in Jamie's storyline in A Storm of Swords. This chapter is the springboard for Jamie to get downriver with Brienne and on into territory where his character changes, becomes slightly better. We'll talk about that. But back at River Run, Jamie and Brienne leave behind an even more broken Catelyn whose heart grows stonier still as the truth behind her father-in-law and her would-be husband's murder now joins together with Catelyn's grief over her dead sons. And those hits are not going to stop coming for Catelyn Stark. Soon, Rob is going to return as the phrase depart his side, and even as Jamie will somehow make it to King's Landing, she'll head north and to her doom. Mm, that's perfect, sir. That's exactly where you want to leave off Catelyn and Clash of Kings, mm-hmm. and we will pick up on exactly those notes when we return to her in A Storm of Swords. Mm-hmm. Moving on now into foreshadowing and groundwork, of course, Jamie will further elaborate on the heiress backstory to Brienne in A Storm of Swords, and another one of the most kind of hypnotic and just like horrifying scenes in the whole series. And I love how George does that, because as a first-time reader, you might think this is it. Like, oh, we've gotten the Mad King backstory now. The only real clue is Jamie says, actually, I didn't kill him for the Starks. If you're a clever first-time reader, you pick up and then go, oh, there's more yeah. to learn here. But... I think for most of us, it just came out of nowhere in A Storm of Swords as Jamie starts in that monologue and we realize, oh, there's still so much we didn't know. Yeah, it's it's a great monologue that he, that he gives to Brienne in, the, in that bathtub in, in Heron Hall. And, you know, it's it's animated by this this distinction of, it's, it really starts here with, with Catelyn continuing to call Jamie the Kingslayer and calling him the monster and the creature and things like that. And then Jamie reacting against that when Brienne is reflecting what Catelyn Stark is talking about. 
and about the vows that he swore and how she how he broke his vow despite Eris being mad and all that that type of nonsense. Excuse me. But I think like, you know, ultimately too for for Jamie, his story has to progress beyond that and we have to learn a little bit more about what was actually animating Jamie's actions in 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 King's Landing. And, and it's a bit more complicated simply that Jamie wanted to save all of the citizens of King's Landing. There was the fact that he was also ordered by Eris to kill Tywin, his father, which is another factor which does animate his decision going forward. So there is complexity even in the revelations that Jamie eventually gives to Brienne and that bathtub scene in Heron Hall. So when Jamie says in passing in this scene that he is beloved by one for a kindness he never did, what's he talking about there? Well, again, we will learn in the Storm of Swords. He means Tyrion loving him for supposedly arranging his tryst with Tysha, which of course Jamie didn't actually do. That's a lie Tywin forced him to tell. And that's, again, the kind of thing you're not likely to notice as a first-time reader. This scene is just very dramatic and it's happening so quickly, you're probably not going to pause and go, huh? What's Jamie talking about there with this kindness he did? On reread, you go, oh, of course. That that means Taisha was kind of in the back of his mind this whole time. Do you get like the sense that like Jamie and Catelyn for some of this chapter are talking past each other? Like Jamie is like right. focusing on like his own like traumatic experiences and eventually he voices them about what happened with Brandon and, and Rickard. But at the same time, he's still like, as he's talking about like, ah, I'm in love for the one thing. That, that I didn't do and hated for the one thing that everyone that I actually should be praised for. But Catelyn doesn't quite understand all of that quite yet. And Jamie's not going to explain fully about that until, again, we're at Harrenhal and a storm of swords, Jamie 6. Yeah, I mean, that's, that that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's really tough. I'm not, because I think, I think, yeah, they are, like, because they are talking to each other about generational stuff. Yeah, but I think you you hit a point that yeah they're not. They're, it's almost like they're both talking to Tyrion in a way because <laughs> a point, Jamie yeah. brings up Tyrion here uh, subtextually, and Catelyn is kind of really making a deal with Tyrion. So Tyrion is kind of this offstage presence they kind of both wish they were talking to instead, but they're really kind of left with each other. So yeah, I like I like that a lot. It's great, all good stuff. So Catelyn says, telling Jamie in their little uh, exchange of information, that the Tyrells don't seem to have taken a new side yet. And that's just George reminding us about the Tyrells. They've been off page for a while, but George reminding us, hey, they're going to be important. Keep them in your mind. They haven't taken a new side yet. He's setting us up for the reveal that they have joined forces with Tywin. This is something we see often in Catelyn's chapters where, like, they're trying to find out where the Tyrells are and where the Lannisters are. In that last Catelyn chapter in Catelyn 6, Mm-hmm. Catelyn literally pulls out a map and is looking through and be like, okay, so if Tywin is retreating to the southeast, he's probably getting close to the Blackwater Rush at this point. And the Tyrells, they still have not taken necessarily a side in this war yet. And wow, that I mean, she doesn't say this explicitly, but the reader should be like, hmm, the Tyrells were last seen at Bitterbridge. Is it possible that Tywin and the Tyrells are relatively close by and they can link up? And that is indeed what does happen when uh, when Tywin... Littlefinger and the Tyrells reach out to Tywin's retreating army and they get together and sail down the Blackwater Rush and their barges and, uh, of course, make a make a, rop- make a proper ruin of Stannis' uh, little fun little battle going outside of King's Landing. Yes, and it's great. All the puzzle pieces are in there, so you can go back and it all makes sense, but it's never made clear enough to spoil the fun for the first-time reader, which is a, a delicate balance that George is great at. Oh, yeah. So, at the end of this chapter, Catelyn calls Brienne's name and asks her, asks for her sword. That's where we end. And at the very end of Brienne's arc in A Feast for Crows, she is being hung by Lady Stoneheart unless she's going to, you know, go off and, and deliver Jamie to her. And then Brienne calls out a word which has confirmed to be sword, indicating that she's going to work for Stoneheart and deliver Jamie to her. And I think that that might have been George trying to create a, a direct parallel here because, of course, Brienne's arc in A Feast for Crows also ends on a cliffhanger. George probably knew at that point, oh, okay, this isn't going to end with a big plot thing. 
what's like what's a good echo what's a good parallel to make this all tie it together so i think it, i think he might have been deliberately having you know a sword related cliffhangers on both these part of brienne's story like in here in clash of kings she's the one handing the sword and then at oh, the yeah. end of Easter crows she's the prisoner uh, it's such a, it's it's so great that george ends up dovetailing these that that at the end of Brienne's story and a, and a feast for crows on another cliffhanger in the same with Catelyn's story Catelyn's story line hint, ends mm. here fun little uh, uh fandom note about that is that this actually occurred in 2012 and that George is at a convention appearance and someone asks him hey George George mm. what was the word that Brienne that Brienne shouted at the end because it's not revealed explicitly in a feast for crows and George is like hmm probably stroking his beard of course what do you what does the audience all think in the audience is like they said kingslayer he said bran or he said you're out about stannis and then someone shouted sword and george's like got that one right she said mm-hmm. sword so that was the actual uh uh the, the revelation that george does there so you know george for does a really good job i think as as with his fans i mean i, I know we we we're obviously fans, of course, but I think uh, George's interactions with the fans are especially cool, and that's uh, it's great. It's 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 all good stuff there. Yeah, that's great. That I, I, I remembered it was a few years back, but I remembered the specifics, and yeah, I can imagine I can imagine his smile and and pointing him out doing that. That's wonderful. <laughs> so, going into our theory and discussion section for this episode, obviously, Catelyn frees Jamie Lannister from his cell right after this chapter ends, sends him off with Brienne of Tarth in hopes for uh, facilitating a prisoner exchange of Jamie for Sansa. And this is, to put it mildly, a controversial decision, not only in-universe, but among the fandom. So we thought we would settle this question once and for all, preventing any other conversations from being necessary on the subject. I ask you, Jeff, did Catelyn Stark do the wrong thing here? Well, let me get my hair correct here oh, for this live stream. All right, we're looking good. All right, uh, you know, you know, we we did uh, Davos two for for a Clash of Kings. We had a, we had a lot of fun debating about whether Stannis was the one that actually ordered the Shadow Baby against Renly and then against uh, and then against Courtney Penrose, uh, which was a great conversation. We're gonna we're not gonna replicate that exactly here, but I get to play the part of Catelyn Stark's attorney. So Brenda Beefish, Catelyn Stark's attorney <laughs> at law. Got to get Clint and Mary in here to act as proper counsels, but we'll do right. our best, folks. We'll do our best. Uh, this does, I think, you know, I yeah. So I'm going to be Catelyn Stark's lawyer here, and hell yeah, cannot wait. So my defense of Catelyn Stark rests on three arguments. Number one, Jamie has zero value as a hostage until Catelyn gives him value by releasing him. Number two, Jamie proves his worth to Catelyn through his honesty in this conversation and furthermore plans actually to fulfill his part of the bargain. And number three, Jamie can influence acting hand Tyrion, Queen Regent Cersei, or ass hand Tywin to release Sansa from captivity. So let's talk about the original value of Jamie as articulated by Catelyn Stark back in the Game of Thrones, Catelyn 8. Our best hope, our only true hope is that you can defeat, and she's talking with Rob here, the foe in the field. If you should chance to take Lord Tywin or the Kingslayer captive, why then a trade might very well be possible, but that is not the heart of it. So long as you have power enough that they must fear you, Ned and your sister should be safe. Cersei is wise enough to know that she may need them to make her peace should the fighting go against her. So from the get-go, the entire endeavor of fighting Jamie or Tywin was to take take them prisoner in order to conduct a hostage swap. Jamie Jamie or Tywin for Ned and the girls. Of course, half of this bargain didn't work out because Joffrey, with <laughs> Littlefinger's probable help, murdered Ned Stark. But Sansa is still captive of the Lannisters, and theoretically, a trade is still possible. 
However, by a clash of kings, the two sides are holding Sansa slash Jaime to in order to secure the survival slash good treatment of the other, as Cersei told Tyrion in Tyrion 12, that previous Tyrion chapter that we covered. Otherwise, the current value of Jaime is to hold him prisoner or to keep him off the battlefield. Now, Catelyn attempts to mitigate that by having Jaime swear the following oath at sword point, mind you. Swear that you will never take up arms against Stark nor Tully. Swear that you will compel your brother to honor his pledge to return my daughter safe and unharmed. Swear on your honor as a knight, on your honor as a lancer, on your honor as a sworn brother of the King's Guard. Swear it by your sister's life and your father's and your son's, by the old gods and the new, and I'll send you back to your sister. Refuse and I will have your blood. I wonder if that's going to have any ramifications come the winds of winter. I think so. Jamie does follow up this memory of the oath with that thought about whether the High Septa would really think an oath at sword point was valid. But shockingly, and this is shockingly for, for me when I first read it, as Jamie thinks in his Storm of Swords, he plans to keep the part of the oath about returning Sansa, as he says in Jamie 3. Jamie had decided that he would return Sansa and the younger girl as well if she could if she could be found. It was not like to win him back his lost honor, but the notion of keeping faith when all expected betrayal amused him more than he could say. And as indicated by his resistance to Cersei's order to march on Riverrun in a feast for crows, and his later reflection that he had technically not he had technically kept his oath to Catelyn not to fight the Starks or Tullys by not fighting any battles, any actual battles in Riverrun rather, Jaime was planning to keep his oath not to take up arms as well. Back in the Riverrun dungeon, Catelyn had no guarantee that Jaime was planning to keep his oath, but it should be noted that Catelyn thinks throughout the dialogue scene that Jaime was being honest with Catelyn to his personal disadvantage at several points. So, and we talked about this in the main cast, but I think that Jamie's honesty most of all influenced Catelyn's desperate gambit to try and to win Sansa back, which was, again, the intended purpose of holding Jamie prisoner in the first place. God. Moreover, Rob later tells Catelyn that she was in the right to have originally urged Rob to do the prisoner's exchange. I should have traded the Kingslayer for Sansa when you first urged it, Rob's, urged it, Rob said as they walked the gallery. If I'd offered to wed her the, to the Knight of Flowers, the Tyrells might be ours instead of Joffrey's. I should have thought of that. So, to give this quote a more full context, Rob was not agreeing with Catelyn's decision to free Sansa without his leave. He's rather saying that he should have taken up his mom's advice back in Catelyn 1 and worked in an official agreement with the Lancers from the outset. So now that we've established a few pieces, let's talk about the fly in my ointment. Are the Lannisters good faith actors here? No, they're not. However, the Lannisters are not altogether bad faith actors in every circumstance. I'm just going to get a lot of shit for that. I can already feel that. Let's start with Tyrion, the person who, who Catelyn releases Jaime to. He certainly proved to be a bad faith actor in defying the peace banner to try and spring Jaime previously free from River Run. And yet, in his conversation with Sansa after that evil scene in the throne room, he has this one line that stuck with me. The next time you visit the gods, what does he tell Sansa? Pray that your brother has the wisdom to bend the knee. Once the North returns to the king's peace, I mean to send you home. What this quote indicates is that Tyrion was open to releasing Sansa under his own terms, that the Starks bend the knee. But if Jaime shows back up in King's Landing with, with the intent to take Sansa back to River Run, then he might be able to convince Tyrion to follow suit. Now, Jaime had convinced Tyrion of the lie that Tywin told him about Tysha being a sex worker after all, is it all so far to assume Jaime couldn't sway Tyrion to release Sansa, especially as her value is low to the Lannister cause and Tyrion has a natural sympathy for Sansa's plight under Joffrey? Now on to Cersei. The Queen Regent's primary investment in Sansa, as was talked about back in Sansa 4, was her ability to play broodmare to Joffrey. By the end of that last Sansa chapter of the week, Cersei knows that Sansa doesn't really want to marry Joffrey. 
And anyways, Sansa has even less value as the Blackwater brings the Tyrells and the marriage between Joffrey and Marjorie to cement the alliance. So perhaps Cersei won't mind? Question mark? Eh, that's probably a weak argument. Finally, there's the shit lord who dies on the toilet, Lord Tywin Lannister. Tywin is the worst bad faith actor in the Lannister cause, but he is not altogether bad faith in that he has actually returned former hostages and prisoners like Willis Manderley. Of course, Tywin does this after Wyman returns to the King's Peace, so that must mean that he's only willing to do prisoner hostage swaps after fire and steel have been served and the enemies and, their, and his enemies go to their knees. Actually, no, Tywin does ransoms for the Freys, as Arya observes at Harrenhal when the Freys are still Stark loyalists. Moreover, Tywin does a real live prisoner swap in A Storm of Swords with Tywin at the head of Lannister operations in King's Landing. Quote from A Storm of Swords, Catelyn 5. Rob had dispatched Jane's uncle Rolf Spicer to deliver young Martin Lannister to the Golden Tooth the very day he received Lord Tywin's ascent to the exchange of captives. It was deftly done. Her son was relieved of his fear for Martin's safety. Galbraith Glover was relieved to hear that his brother Robert had been put on a ship at Duskendale. So what I'm ultimately arguing is that the Lannisters are really and truly bad faith actors, but they are not wholly treacherous and they can be negotiated with at some level. Jamie for Sansa rests in this category as it gives the Lancers what they want in exchange for an asset that doesn't mean all that much to them as a Clash of Kings closes. Ladies and gentlemen of the, pos uh, ladies and gentlemen of the podcast court, whew, I rest my case. Catelyn has only done one thing wrong ever in her entire life. A performance worthy of my cousin Vinny, my friend. <laughs> Be beautifully done. I hate even Thank to you. disagree. And, uh, you know, I, I, I may... I may be a little more leery of trusting the Lannister brothers than you. Tyrion has already broken custom by sending in false envoys, and as Jaime himself will think in a storm of swords, eh, how valid is a vow given drunk at sword points? I think you do make great points that it's easy to paint the Lannisters with too broad a brush and to uh, overlook theories in which they do play the game and could be maybe counted on to play it even further if it was stacked, if the deck was stacked in their favor, as you're saying, it would be in this case. Even putting all that aside, however, for me the sticking point is that Catelyn does not have the authority to exchange hostages with the Lannisters. As such, even if the Lannisters were operating in good faith, they have no reason to consider themselves obligated to return Sansa. Rob, not Catelyn, is the Stark slash Tully authority with whom the Lannisters would make deals if they were so inclined, and Rob would not approve of exchanging Jaime for Sansa. Catelyn knows that. She thought as much in her previous chapter when Cleos Frey first introduced this possibility. She even admitted... Rob would have good reason to refuse. We also have to consider this decision within the larger political context. You said earlier that Catelyn might view this as a win-win situation regarding the mm. upcoming fight at King's Landing. I think it's possible, but I think you could also see it as a lose-lose. If Stannis mm. wins the upcoming battle, well, then Catelyn's deal is moot. If the Lannisters win, she has just given away Rob's major asset in suing for peace. If Catelyn hadn't sent away Jaime, could Rob have traded him to Tywin for a pardon after the Blackwater? Avoiding the Red Wedding? Well, maybe, maybe not. As we'll get into in A Storm of Swords, Tywin appears to have already begun the planning for the Red Wedding for the Red Wedding, before learning that Jaime was free, so there might have been no way out. On the whole, however, I have to come down on the prosecution side. I think <laughs> Catelyn's decision here made things harder for her side of the war, with no clear benefit. I get why she did it. Loss and grief made her desperate to get back what loved ones she could. That's the structure of tragedy for you. Disasters inspire further disasters, and the fallout awaits in the Storm of Swords. Yeah, I mean, like, getting outside of, like, being the lawyer for Catelyn Stark, I think there there is a fair <laughs> amount of 
ambiguity, not just ambiguity, but just in terms of a lot of assumptions that Catelyn is making that are going into her idea of springing Jamie free for, for Sansa that don't speak to just necessarily like a logical series of progressive thoughts. Like it's actually more like a desperate gambit on Catelyn's part in order to free Sansa, knowing that this is the only way that she could possibly do that. But now to use Elena's wonderful wording that the cow has been milked and they can't squirt the cream back up the udder. What should have Rob done after learning what Catelyn did? And this is a this is a, a less of a lawyerly question, more of a an alternate universe where Rob Stark has a, a little more freedom of judgment. So in, in my opinion, I, I think Rob should have owned his mom's decision and pretended that it was his own. And this this will be my most controversial point. I know that people are going to give me more shit for this one, but I must be brave as I often am and face Damn the right. arrows that you are all presently notching in your rhetorical bows. <laughs> Um, there, there's an opportunity for Rob here to kill two birds with one stone. He has plausible and truthful deniability for knowing Catelyn released Jamie, so he can appease his lords like Rickard Karstark. And on the other hand, Rob can secretly send a bird from River Run to King's Landing, telling Tywin that he's sending Jamie back to King's Landing in exchange for Sansa. The problem, of course, is that Edmure sends out three ravens to Harrenhal, so Rob would also have had to send out another set of birds countermanding Edmure's order down to Roose Bolton. But still, it's only three ravens, only going to one location, Harrenhal. It seems more easy than not to countermand the order and let Jamie get to King's Landing while the other birds fly to the Red Keep. Now, Rob doesn't follow my imagined alternate universe <laughs> for good character-based reasons and for policy reasons, too, as we'll get into in Catelyn 2 and 3 in A Storm of Swords. But I think that's... Maybe it's not plausible, but as I was like just thinking through the arguments, this became this was one of my arguments originally when I was doing this. This uh, we were doing these these arguments back and forth, and I decided to make it a, its own little thing. So, what do you think, sir? I think I had never even considered it until you got into this part of the doc that really Rob does have more control over the narrative than it appears that he could pretend at least to the Lannisters that this was all kosher and that he had given his authority and that maybe he could try to make a mountain out of a molehill here in a, in a positive way. You know, I think I think the problem Robert went into if he tried this gambit is the same problem Balin Greyjoy ran into. Tywin already has what he wants. You know, why should he give Rob anything? No negotiation has taken place beforehand here. He'd have Jamie. Moreover, I don't I don't think the Lannisters would necessarily believe Rob's secret letter that he let Jamie go. Nothing passes the smell test here. Rob wouldn't send Jamie on faith without a negotiation first. Rob wouldn't wait until weeks after he was gone to send word to King's Landing. And Rob would not send a lone random Stormlands woman <laughs> as Jamie's escort. There is no reason he would do that. Even putting that aside, I think Jamie would just tell his family the truth when he gets to the city. No, Catalan freed me. And then they would know that and that they, they would know that they don't owe Rob anything. And yeah, finally, Rob countermanding Edmure's orders to seize the Kingslayer. Uh, you know, that can't be so easily kept secret as a letter to Tywin. And letting Jamie pass by Harrenhal is going to be just as unpopular with his lords as letting Jamie go in the first place. I think, you know, it's, it's the personal and the political running into each other hard here. And I don't think, you know, George, uh, he, he allows Tywin to defend himself regarding the Red Wedding, but I don't think he wants us to be convinced by Tywin's arguments. Yeah. Whereas in this case, I think we, George might want us to be stymied and to, to have difficulty coming down on either side. Do you think that's fair? I think it's, that's totally fair. And I think, you know, when we put aside like the pros and cons for Catelyn's decision, ultimately, this is a story about characters, point of view characters mm -hmm. in the form of, of Catelyn Stark and secondary characters like Rob Stark. And they do and act in ways that are consistent with their characterization. I think, you, you know, 
this is this is another spot where you know where we're talking about like Catelyn at the end of the crossroads back from a Game of Thrones where fans are fans will actually debate this as much as they debate Catelyn at the end of the crossroads but maybe they should because this is actually I think a more like interesting venue and possibly underexplored in terms of, of fan discourse on it but I think like when you go when you talk about the pros and cons I think sometimes you lose the the context of the characters in question and Catelyn's grief and you start to like drain the narrative of the emotions and make it kind of a more academic. Now, I don't think that's what we did here because of course we've done amazing work as always, but I think, you know, we have to mix both the academic side of the pros and cons for doing a certain element and a certain act and also interplay that with Catelyn's mindset of having lost both of her sons or what she believing that she lost both of her sons and thinking that she, Rob's still in danger out in the Westerlands. Sansa's still in danger down in King's Landing. This is her last desperate attempt to free Sansa Stark and maybe Arya if the Lancers have her too. Of course, they don't and they lie about it. So, I mean, again, they're not good actors in any stretch of the imagination, but it is still a, a fun to, it's fun to debate about these types of things. But it's also important just to keep in mind the, the character context that George imbues into the narrative. Yeah, those scattered Starks aching for each other, like John in Ghost's uh, Dream in his last chapter. And yeah, you mentioned Arya and how, you know, of course, Catelyn's efforts to get her back this way are pointless because Arya was never in Lannister power. But then ironically, Arya ends up like, you know, a few yards away from her yeah. at the Red Wedding and Catelyn has no idea. And that's just the, that's just the whims of fate at work. And I think, you know, as important as character agency is, we also have to allow for luck and chance to befall mm-hmm. these people. And bad luck befalls the Starks hard when we get to Storm of Swords. Oh, yeah. George is definitely pressing the uh, his thumbs down hard mm-hmm. on the scale against the Starks. And that's ramping up here at the end of A Clash of Kings. And it's going to only ramp up further as we get into A Storm of Swords. And with that, we're closing out on Catelyn for A Clash of Kings. How sad. But, you know, a lovely, amazing storyline. I think, like, you put it really well when you first we first started talking about Catelyn Stark and Catelyn 1, of Catelyn being your favorite point of view character in A Clash of Kings it's it's hard to argue with you coming at the end of Catelyn 7 and so as we close out here we always just want to just thank everyone for listening and thank you for for watching and uh, we, we appreciate all of your your support and your eyes and your ears it, it means so much to us if you have the chance please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts Google Play SoundCloud Podbean Spotify hit a thumbs up on YouTube hit that uh, alert button I think the, uh, the bell button to, to be notified when we have uh, a new episode coming out you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. You can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beavish on Twitter, Brenda Beavish on Reddit, and my website is wars and politics, fire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our High Lords and Ladies on Patreon. Red Relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers. Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle. Septon Marybald, the Shoeless Sage. Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood. Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets. Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson. Lady Brit, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal. Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood. Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, Matt Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon Merrifull Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, wielder of Lady Forlorn. Lord Andrew, warden of the Dubai Sands. Ryan Noy, forger of the Mighty Hammer and keeper of the King's Anvil. 
Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Smallpaw, Guardian of, of the Stonehaven, Defender of the Natar Castle, Septon T-Bone, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, Caretaker of the Inn of the Crossroads, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, and Lady Carly. Thank you so much, as always, to uh, all our High Lords and Ladies. Yeah, thank you folks so much. It means a lot that you support us every single month. Thank you. So, join us in two weeks' time, because yes, again, we are taking off for Thanksgiving, in which, for Clash of Kings Theon 5, in which Theon Greyjoy has to deal with horrible nightmares, mysterious murders, everyone justifiably hating him, and worst of all, Asha flexing all over him again. How does this always happen to him? And we're pleased to announce we'll be joined by a first-time guest and villain of everyone, Alicia Benton. So... We look forward to that, and we're going to enjoy welcoming Alicia as our guest for that episode. Uh, few can match Jeff for perfect Twitter villainy, but you know, Alicia is up there. No, in all seriousness, we love her, of course, and we're, we're delighted to have her on. We've been uh, looking forward to having her for this chapter for quite some time. Absolutely. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching us, and we'll see you all in two weeks' time.